Welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. I'm your host, Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this podcast to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. Most of my guests are authors, and in each episode, I explore their life journeys and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read so that you can use these same strategies and tactics too. So, if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Michael Hebb, a multidisciplinary artist whose medium is the table. It's been said that in the realm of death, there are no experts. But I don't think that's true. Michael has spent many, many, many years talking about death and is the founder of deathoverdinner.org, an incredible movement that's bringing people together around tables, over meals, to talk about issues related to end of life. He's a very thoughtful guy that I met through Summit Series. In the recent past, he has served as an advisor to the Summit Series, and he also started a creative agency that's advised many organizations, including the Obama Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Ted Med, the World Economic Forum, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Clinton Global Initiative, XPRIZE Foundation, and the Nature Conservancy. His writings have appeared in GQ, Food and Wine, Food Arts, Arcade, Seattle Magazine, and City Arts, and he can often be found speaking at universities and conferences. For the past 20 years, he's been following the mandate, My Client is Civilization and his projects have turned into movements around the world that have impacted millions of people. His new book, Let's Talk About Death, is published in October of 2018. I've read it. I think it's amazing. He has incredible insights, both in this podcast and in the book. He talks about the table as the first architecture, saying that tables are already built. We all have them, but most of us don't know how to use them. That the table is the basic engine of culture. And then he talks about he's committed to spending the rest of his life reinvigorating the table as a place of culture. I think you'll learn a lot about yourself, probably think about some things you've never thought about before, uh, or if you have, this podcast will encourage you to go deeper. So I hope you enjoy. I hope you, uh, if you don't know Michael already, that you get to know him better. And I will talk to you at the end of this amazing conversation with Michael Hebb. Thanks for listening. So, what's life about? What's life about? The f- when I replayed that question in my head, I replayed it more as the classic, what is the meaning of life, right? And what, what's life about is, is kind of a, a tricky spin on it. it. You know, there's a cliche around the meaning of life, but what's life about doesn't have quite that cliche. I, you know, as a... Individual, I kind of want to look at that and think about it as an individual and as a collective because I think we've greatly discount the state of our collective consciousness. And, you know, we live in a, a country founded on the notion of rugged individualism. Um, and so it applies to that lens, I think, applies to, you know, even me personally knowing that I have that cognitive bias of thinking about things from a very individualistic perspective when in fact you know we are um, we're social tribal creatures and in many ways i don't think we're prepared to 
answer the question about what is life about currently. I think our collective culture is so toxic that to attempt to take on a philosophical, psychological, existential question of that scale, um, I think that the answers that even I can give, regardless of how much I've attained through uh, my own experiences and my own self-reflection, the fact that I am in a ecosystem that is so repressed, that is so far from authenticity, that I don't know that I'm able to even think about things in a way with enough clarity to give you a meaningful answer, um, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, and I mean, it, we now know that forests are intelligent networks, mm. right? Trees and plants and forests communicate about threat, um, like fires. They communicate about nutrients to other species. Mm. And so there's both opportunities and threats that are communicated and there's a, an intelligence in the network. And I think that as a culture, which I'm sure we'll dig into around um, this notion around death and many other conversations we're not facing, um, as a culture, we're so deeply repressed, so far from our own vitality, that collectively um, it doesn't allow the individual to have the type of clarity that you might find in a, um, in a culture that would produce the Dalai Lama. Right. Um, in a culture that would produce, you know, a variety of different indigenous cultures that would produce the type of clear thinking that I think is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. um, I can talk about healing mm -hmm. in a toxic culture, but I don't think that I can take on an existential question and give you much that's useful. OK, that. so what if I change the question just a little bit sure. to say, what is your life about? My life has been about listening to an authentic voice inside me that has always been quite a bit louder than culture or convention. So the, I don't know if it's gifted or if it's cursed <laughs> with um, some very clear messaging about what I'm supposed to be doing. And that doesn't necessarily come through in, you know, Oxford English always, but I've known from a very young age and have been motivated from a very young age to think about where we could go as a culture, to be empathic enough to feel like there's something missing mm -hmm. um, and there's things that could be improved and have been never been motivated by a job or money. Um, it's always this motivation that's sometimes infuriating um, because it puts me in some, you know, sometimes some very risky situations. Um, but the fact that I've been motivated by how do I help heal this culture that I'm in mm -hmm. has been since, you know, I was 15, 16 years old, been a resounding force in my life. And so I didn't even really have the luxury of thinking about, you know, life, career, family, all as a priority. Mm -hmm. and, and, and more just thinking about, you know, how do I help this, the people around me live brighter, more authentic lives? Um, so, uh, you know, it, it just so happens that living around a central purpose that's larger than you creates a pretty extraordinary life. You know, so I've, I've been fortunate to live what it feels like, even though it's a young life, a pretty extraordinary life. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and when you say that this is something 
that really began for you around the age of 15. I know you were kicked out when you were 15. You went back home for a mm-hmm. year, left finally when you were 17. Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah, and I've, I really think that the it started much earlier when my father was... So my father was 72 when I was born. He was born in 1904 in the Yukon Gold Rush. Yeah, yeah, no, it's remarkable. I think only Charlie Chaplin and a few others have beat him. Yeah. Uh, you know, elderly fatherhood. Yeah, I but, think Steve Martin is 60 or 70. Yeah, it's pretty rare. And um, so the likelihood of him seeing my high school graduation was already fairly dim, uh-huh. right? And and that was I think one of his central concerns, um, certainly, but they decided to go ahead and have you know, have the child and have me anyway. But needless to say, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was in second grade. And, you know, there's a kind of, your life, if you're a second grader um, living with a father that's struggling with Alzheimer's, your life is already significantly different than your peers. How? Well, that isn't a struggle that most second graders are facing. Sure. Um, And so, uh, you know, fitting in, is and our schools are designed around um, people towing a line and fitting in. Mm-hmm. It's the um, it's an industrialized education system, and so it's no surprise that our social networks at school are about fitting in. And the freaks and the weirdos, you know, uh, like they are um, ostracized. Right? That's not a desirable place within our culture. And so it's it you know especially in our um, our middle schools or elementary schools and our high schools. So when you have an experience that's so distinct from normalcy, Mm. it creates a schism. Mm. And that really came true. I think it started with my father um, getting ill. But when he died, when I was 13, I realized how little I had in common Mm. and that I was going to stop trying so hard to relate to um, and build relations with the people, with my peers, mm-hmm. because I found it, it was no longer nourishing. I had experienced a loss of a father and was already a very thoughtful human being, but I, I needed other resources than my peers could offer. And, yeah. and I wasn't getting it from my mother. There weren't great uncles and there weren't, you know, I wasn't surrounded by um, mentors. And so I turned to literature you know, starting with Henry Miller and Anais Nin and Lawrence Durrell and their friendship and moving on into understanding the world of Hemingway and um, Gertrude Stein. And what I started to see was both what a real, what it looked like when people came together around passionate interest, mm-hmm. a kind of scene, but like a meaningful scene, mm-hmm. right? Sort of at a very young age, I could see the distinction between a meaningful scene of people connecting around things that they were passionate about. And then also was introduced to mysticism, you know, especially when it came to Henry Miller and Lawrence Durrell and, um, and then D.H. Lawrence. And the writers that I loved and loved most um, in their um, older lives um, got, became completely fascinated with mysticism and Eastern philosophy. So at the age of, you know, 14, 15, I'm reading... Thich Nhat Hanh, um, I'm reading Thomas Merton, I'm reading Rumi, and, you know, started meditating, started doing um, TM when I was 17, had out-of-body experiences, and so this, 
there's been this constant and you know it kind of marked me at that period this interest in meaningful uh, gatherings of humans and and then people that are interested in a truth that's larger than what we see in our everyday life and larger than our cultural understanding so I think that that those became my books and my practices and then some mentors starting to filter in became my community and then I just had to go find you know the a meaningful collection of people yeah. in an adult setting interesting who were some of your mentors during this time um, I had a teacher named Kay Johnson um, who saw the talent that I had in writing and at, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school actually went to the pretty extraordinary length of giving me four class periods to just write wow. and went to literally sparked a battle with the vice president or principal and the and the other teachers who were like why are you making an exception of him I don't care if he like you're disrupting our our core curriculum and you know <laughs> and how do we grade him and she went to bat and she's like no he needs time and space to write um he has a unique voice and I want to help him develop it she also was the person who uh, even though I graduated as a junior from high school, convinced me to uh, to apply to read. Um, I was I wasn't going to go to college. I thought it was bullshit. Why Why did you think of that? By the way, um, it, because it seemed like well, it didn't seem like a meaningful collection of humans. Again, like it seemed like people were doing it for inauthentic reasons. Um, they were doing it. Uh, people were going to towards higher um, learning and education without articulating why they'd want it, mm-hmm. that it was a way to spend their parents' money, that, it, that you know, education is a privilege, um, not something that should feel like something like a should or, or a stepping stone towards their career. Mm-hmm. So it just seemed, the whole thing seemed distasteful to me. And also, you know, when Henry Miller and Jack Kerouac and, um, you know, Gary Snyder and... Um, Thich Nhat Hanh and the Buddha are your heroes, right? Going to Oregon State University is not that attractive, <laughs> right? You're like, that's not the path to enlightenment. Um, so I want to, you know, um, stroll the, you know, the the dusty world and want to, you know, experience life. I don't want to be stuck in a school. But Kay convinced me that that my opportunities as a writer and as a thinker would be limited if I didn't at least give college a try. Well, she must have done a pretty good job because you ended up not only getting a bachelor's degree, but you went on and got a master's, right? Neither of those things. Oh, you didn't? No. Uh-uh. But you, you did enter a master's program, is that? I taught at a master's oh, program. So you, how yeah. great is that? that yeah. You didn't, you didn't, <laughs> I didn't complete. Degree, but you taught. No, I dropped out of Reed after a year. Um, it was intellectually an incredible environment, but I, it, the people were so unwell. So unhealthy. There were incredible amounts of drugs being used um, and just a lot of unprocessed pain and trauma. Add drugs and add a great deal of intellectualism and you have an incredibly ugly cocktail and, and, you know, depressive. And so, and I didn't want to be in that community. Um, Left and then um, had a pretty significant nervous breakdown or, you know, I guess best described as, as a nervous breakdown. I know that that word doesn't necessarily mean something specific, but had a, a, a mental break and had to kind of rebuild from the ground up when I was 19. 
and that's when I decided to go study architecture. Um, and so I spent, I did four years worth of architecture work at uh, University of Portland in the studios, but I didn't complete the other requirements. And then started, was asked my fourth year of studio work during um, um, an architectural crit where there's architects who come in to essentially destroy your work. Um, there was an architect named Mark Lakeman who um, asked me, one, if he could buy, he was so moved by my work that if he could buy the uh, model that I built and if I'd go to tea with him afterward, and it was funny because the other architect in that crit was Brad Klopfill of Allied Works, who's become one of the most important American architects, and he hated what I did. Wow. Um, and Mark said, you know, his kind of response to Brad pissing all over me um, was, uh, you know, I'm going to buy, can I buy that piece for $100 and what can you will come have tea with me? And at tea, he asked me if I would be his partner in a project called the City Repair Project. And we started building public squares illegally in the public right-of-way in Portland and tea houses and all kinds of kind of Burning Man-esque, Rainbow Gathering-esque projects um, before, certainly before Burning Man. It was in the public consciousness. Well, even asking someone to tea, I think that can only happen in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know how well that would go over. Yeah. Maybe now. But even like when that happened, uh, I don't know if a dude could have done that in like somewhere else, you know? Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, he's um, and Mark is a is a remarkable human being. Um, it sounds and, like it. Yeah, and he's continued to do his work, and there his work is now spread all over the world. And so for two years we were brothers in arms, and he was much older than I am, um, but he didn't see himself as a mentor, even though he was. He saw me as his partner, wow. and so. You know, the so I dropped out of architecture school. And yeah, so when I was asked to be a teaching fellow at the University of Washington in the graduate communi- communications program, it was a bit, not only a surprise to me, but some of the administrators mm-hmm. <laughs> who didn't, they don't like that. They like you having done your time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some people had to fight pretty hard to, to allow me to teach there. Wow. So. Well, and then it was there that you had this conversation with a couple ladies on a train yeah i had taken the um the position of teaching fellow with the idea um of how do we scale this was the the idea i was investigating was how do we scale a dinner party like how do we scale um the experiences that i was having at dinners because i at that point had spent about 10 years bringing together um some of the most remarkable minds of our generation to salon-style gatherings. Before we get to this about scaling yeah. the dinner table, how is it, with all these diverse paths that you were following, you know, with the mysticism and with the architecture and this, where where was the food component? How did that come into your life and why, mm-hmm. why is that so central for you? Yeah, so um, food came in in a couple different ways. One, the work that we were doing with City Repair, um, we were, um, and and the tea houses we were building, I saw very clearly that the, the ceremony of drinking tea together, even in a casual setting, is a thing that brings people together and holds them together and then releases them. It's a very, it's a very intentional thing to do. Mm-hmm. We don't think we take it very casually, but you've, you commit to a kind of contract mm-hmm. um, when you um, 
decide to sit down with tea to somebody. And a meal is the same way. What do you mean by that? Like, explain that. What's the contract that people have entered into when they have a tea together? Sure. So if I ask you to sit down and have tea with me, um, you've agreed to give me at least 15 minutes of your time, probably an hour, right? You're more likely than not going to be looking at your phone would you've there's a unwritten contract that that would be rude if we're sitting down to tea we're going to share something mm-hmm. and i'm if i'm inviting you i'm probably providing it so there's already a gift that's being given mm-hmm. um it may be that i go say you go get your own tea at the counter mm-hmm. but if i'm inviting you into an intentional environment to say sit and have tea with me there's that um we're going to converse mm-hmm. uh, more likely than not it would be awkward if we sat there and talked about, you know, and didn't speak to each other. Right. So there is a contract about a, um, a conversation. There's a contract about civility. It's not necessarily, when you're in conflict with somebody, you don't necessarily say, let's go have tea. Right. Um, right. Um, Although it might be good if we did. It would be great if we did. Um, so a lot of those things are true of a meal as well. Mm. Um, the If you're inviting an enemy to the dinner table, you're it, there, it's assumed that you are interested in reconciliation of some kind yeah. or you're trying to poison somebody <laughs> <laughs> so it's one or the other right. um but you know i started to realize that the table is actually the first architecture it's the first intentional other place mm-hmm. right so um shelter we had shelter we had caves right and we could find shelter in different ways but to intentionally build a table um, to share a meal is a pretty significant moment. Mm-hmm. You, you have, you're really investing, um, you know, our predecessors were really investing in that shared experience, right? Yeah. It's not singular. Um, shelter can be singular. Mm-hmm. Um, a table is a communal situation. It's essentially the more convivial, um, more, you know, interactive um, version of a campfire, mm-hmm. right? The fire is where, and, and if you think about the um, height that you cook food over a fire, it's the same height as the table without charring it or burning it. And essentially, if you don't want to burn your fingers while you're eating that food, you want to move it to something else and you don't want it to be in the dirt. So what is that thing? The other thing that is interesting is that um, you know, we made the evolutionary leap from ape to human by cooking, by concentrating calories. So jo- apes have incredibly um, big jaws, right? And smaller brains than we do. When you concentrate the calories by cooking, what we took a huge load off of our belly. So an ape chews seven hours a day. Humans chew 24 minutes. So you have six and a half hours of very intense um, you know, um, activity that the body has to do outsourced. Right. And so there's all this energy and we got big brains and our jaws thinned out because we didn't need to chew all the time. And so eating is what, in fact, makes us human. It's connected to our DNA. Um, It's connected to our evolution. Right. So it's not surprising that we would actually seek out tables for reconciliation or evolution um, as a natural place. So for me, it related to my classics studies around because I was studying the symposiums and the work of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and then architecture um, and understanding that here instead of having to build an entire environment for an experience Mm -hmm. tables 
are already built and we all have them and most of us don't know how to use them mm. right um and so then there was this huge opportunity right and where a, a very large light went on in my head and this is like again the thing where uh, the blessing or the curse to have these these transmissions come through you to and and i realized all this and i said well i'm going to spend the rest of my life reinvigorating the dinner table as a place of culture and realize that it's the basic engine of culture um, is the dinner table. But we have, you know, 20% of meals are eaten in the car. Um, at least another 20% are eaten on the couch or in bed. Um, and so the, um, and how many are eaten standing, how many are, you know, at your desk yeah. um, while you're working. And so, you know, our cultural capital or our um, social capital which we've seen a great reduction in, and we tend to blame on technology i would blame more squarely on the fact that we don't eat together technology is just a tool um the and the fact that we haven't made strong social contracts mm -hmm. around eating together um, i think has been more corrosive to our, our culture and our social uh you know health than anything else yeah. um so i, I found yeah. So I saw, I was like, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And, and I, and I was already considered myself a kind of multidisciplinary artist. And then I was like, well, my, now my uh, medium is the table. You know, the trick is I didn't, there's not clear patrons. There's not other artists that you can share battle stories or, you know, understand a trajectory uh, career wise. So I decided to pick a medium that, you know, essentially it was a man without a country. <laughs> like, and said, so, well, if I'm going to do this work, how am I going to do it? And, you know, and I, the Naomi Pomeroy and I, um, we were dating um, at the time I was working uh, with Mark on City Repair, and she's very talented, and I'm cook. And we ended up building a, um, you know, now she's a very sh famous chef on like um, Top Chef Masters. and. Um, has a um, you know renowned restaurant in Portland called Beast, and Naomi um, and I were dating at the time, and we decided to build a personal chef company for her, that turned into a catering company, that ended up making much more money than the architecture. So I let the architecture go, but I was unfulfilled by the service industry orientation of our catering company, and so. I proposed this idea to Naomi. Naomi was like, "We're gonna, I'm gonna build a 21 foot table in our living room out of hollow corridors, three seven hollow seven foot hollow corridors um, that I can personally put up by myself." She was pregnant at the time with her first daughter. I can put up by myself in about five minutes, and we'll invite 20 friends and strangers to dinner twice a month and call it family supper. Um, and then we'll leave a jar by the door and let them pay. And I knew very well, in the same way that Mark and I were creating toolkits and ideas that we wanted to see happen all over the world um, with intersection repair and the tea house and the tea horse, which did, the, those projects did seed thousands of copycat projects, and that was the intention. Awesome. With Family Supper, the idea was to create the underground restaurant movement. Um, and I knew it at the time. It wasn't, we're just having friends over for dinner. It was, I want to show other would-be chefs, hosts, um, people interested in conviviality and cuisine and food to a way that they can use the space that they have instead of going to culinary school or 
working for Wolfgang Puck or doing any of the traditional route, um, which is very costly. I felt like the culinary world needed an underground, just the way that the art and the architecture and music world, like garage bands, like Nirvana, like all of these things um, that are create the future of an industry or an art form with culinary world lacked. And so I said, we're going to do these illegal dinners in our house and we're going to make a lot of noise about them. And the health department is not going to know what to do with us. <laughs> They're not going to shut us down because they won't even, they won't even know that what we are because yeah. they've never seen it before. Right. And the city is not going to shut us down because they don't, it's not enough money from a, you know, permitting to see it as a, a for-profit business. And so, you know, within six months, we we're on the front page of the dining section of the New York Times, having sparked a, a, a global movement. You know, it just so happens that, you know, Gus Van Sant, um, you know, and the Decemberists and all of these remarkable people that were in Portland ended up at our table. And so and I knew that that was part of it, that that you again, back to that meaningful scene, um, we started to create in Portland through Family Supper and then our restaurants an artistic epoch. Um, it was an era of incredible artistic, you know, production. Mm-hmm. You have Slater Kinney, you have um, Miranda July, the beginning of her career, you have the Decemberists, you have Gus Van Sant, uh, these incredible creators all coming together at our, at our dinners and around our restaurants. Uh, you know, every day you'd walk in and you'd see somebody else was doing remarkable work in Portland or globally, mm-hmm. um, communicating with each other. Matthew Stadler became our writer in residence. Gore Vidal came to do a dinner with us. Oh. Gregory Crudson, like the list went on yeah, and on. And how awesome to have people from so many different disciplines and backgrounds coming together. For sure. Yeah. Marina Abramovic came and did a dinner with us, the famous dancer and artist. Um, you know, and, and, and we had, I mean, I can't even you know the amount and of of intersection mm-hmm. you know thomas keller would came came in ruth reichel and all you know so you had the culinary world mixing with the you know avant-garde art world and the music world i mean that some of the december's first shows were in our were in our restaurant mm-hmm. and so the it it really satisfied that need for me you know and then and then it kind of all blew up <laughs> so how long did you how long did you, you called it Family Supper? Was family that- Supper um, was one component. We ended up with a little bit of a mini restaurant empire that was more of an art uh, project than it was meant to be a business, but we ran it as a business and so we ran it terribly. And But we had three restaurants in total um, and uh, Gotham Building, Tavern, Clark Lewis, and then Family Supper. And it was, you know, they, they, they gained international media attention as restaurants. And, you know, we were, we'd become kind of the it couple in Portland. And, um, and then it all fell apart because we were terrible business people. Um, and I became the persona non grata, the pariah in many ways of Portland. My partners, no one else was willing to take responsibility. And I wasn't willing to defend myself because I'd already been assumed that it was my fault. And so, you know, when the press decides that you are the pariah in a situation if you don't have the money to pay for the PR firm to spin it in your direction, you're pretty much screwed. And so, you know, I had the New York Times eviscerating me and all of the Portland what magazines. Kind of what they say? Um, that I was this um, kind of 
what was Vengali like? Manipulative, larger than life business person impresario <laughs> that had lied to investors or left my wife and child, you know, like this kind of. And then I, and I think the Willamette Week printed that I ran away to Mexico with bags of coke and dope and hookers. <laughs> I don't know if the hookers were in bags or not, but um, and, and the reality is I went to Mexico for two weeks to be with my brother because I was suicidal and I needed to clear my head because of the amount of shame I felt for failing as, a, um, as an entrepreneur. And so, you know, I, I moved, I bought an Airstream um, and moved about 40 minutes outside of Portland because I figured no one would take that away from me. And then I, and I was close to my daughter, so I could see her more than I had in the previous years because I was so busy. Mm-hmm. So I started spending a lot more time with August and then living in the Airstream and then eventually moving to Seattle so I could be have a fresh start mm-hmm. in a city but be close enough to my daughter. And that's really the only reason I moved to Seattle. Wow. So from this story that you've shared how there was such amazing like there was such an amazing creation like something you had a vision for something yeah pursued it with abandon it created something really special for many people yeah for a period and then it ended exploded yeah. it exploded yeah what i'm thinking about is as i'm putting myself in the seat of a listener now also is you know like what's a takeaway from that, whether it's how you came through a failure or how you moved forward with a passion you had, you know, yeah, sure. Like, well, what I mean, you take away from all that. Well, a lot. I mean, the a whole new life. You're at a crossroads when you fail that big. Yeah, and it's very public. <laughs> Many people won't have their shortcomings publicized. Maybe the same no, idea. no, and especially at the time, Portland was such a small but big town, right? Um, and it didn't know how to metabolize this kind of failure. And so it was front page news, you know, for a long time and really like way over considered for the scale of what it was. Um, so I went from being, you know, very loved in Portland to very hated. And so that was pretty shocking. So I knew that I had a choice of to be defined by that failure or to be defined by what I knew to be my true nature. Like, you know, when you're misunderstood, you can get bitter, right? And, or you can um, empower the part of you that you, that you feel wasn't seen, right? Mm -hmm. And so I decided to, I knew that the work that I was doing was for the good of all, right? It was, it was meant for the good of Portland and for culture. And it wasn't seen that way. It was Mm -hmm. seen as um, that I was manipulative, that I was greedy, that I was um, privileged, you know, um, these kind of things, deceptive. And the, and the reality was, was like, no, I was trying my best to wake up a kind of culture and connect a culture and create a meaningful scene within Portland, right? That had lasting impact for sure, both in the culinary world, but the arts world. So it was like one part of me was successful and seen and understood. And another part wasn't and that overshadowed so i could have recoiled or taken an easy route like gotten a job in advertising or something where i knew i could succeed right i'm very clear about how to make a splash and culture you know like advertising would have been easy but what i decided to do was you know made a distinction that i was like i'm not going to own anything for the foreseeable future 
um, so that people, as I reemerge, there won't we can clarify that it wasn't about greed, right? I'm not. I'm never going to take um, investors on again, and I don't want employees. And is is this all still true to today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. About, yeah. Not owning things, but <laughs> yeah, it is actually true about owning things for the most part. I don't. I don't have a kind of um, distaste for ownership. So this almost rules, maybe like very low. Like what I'm hearing is minimalism. You didn't use yeah. that word, but mm-hmm. minimalistic lifestyle. Not looking to take. Not looking for investors. Yeah. Not looking. For employees. Right. Right. Well, and I knew that I had um, a quality about myself that was Icarus-like, right? That I could become ungrounded and be motivated by excitement and attention and make it too grandiose, Mm -hmm. right? And so I had to really ground myself and say, every day I'm going to, well, and for here on forward, I'm only going to do the most honest work I can do, Mm -hmm. right? And I want every step of the way to have total integrity. There's not going to be any half lies, white lies. Like, mm-hmm. it's going to be, the work that I'm going to do is being very, very clear and and very clean and very honest and about um, the table. Mm-hmm. I was like, purify, clarify, take away the businesses and say, well, now I'm, I'm going to actually work on a project from a mission standpoint, not try to combine mission and business, mm-hmm. which some people do brilliantly. I'm not necessarily like, at least at that point in my life, I wasn't able to hold the two together. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that I was just going to focus on mission. And I figured within about 10 years, it'd be really painful for 10 years. And then that there would be enough people who understood where I was coming from and the work that I doing, the work would be clear enough that I wouldn't have to live with that amount of misunderstanding and judgment, mm-hmm. which I found so painful. Yeah. So you talked about business or mission. Mm-hmm. Some people can mix those. You chose mission. Yeah. What is the mission? Multiple things, but I'd say that clarified down to reinvigorating how we eat together became the the call to action, right? And why would we do that is because the table is a exceptional place of healing. It's not only a place of human connection and the building of relationships, it's actually perfectly designed to treat, if you, you know, if we'll indulge that language, repression and shame. Difficult conversations um, are, are the, like, the currency of meaningful dinner experiences. And so in a culture that's so deeply shamed and so deeply repressed, the table becomes like the clinic for that. And so I had a realization that my work was no longer about um, a Western art ideas. Like I used to Marcel Duchamp and the Dadaists and the Situationists and the Surrealists were who I was referencing in my work. Mm -hmm up until that point. And then I started, I went back to my kind of Eastern mystical healing interest and realized that the table and my work were about healing. And so how would would then the table be maximized as a healing vessel, right? As an engine of healing and a vessel of healing. That's beautiful. So that's, you know, that's, that became clear. Awesome. Yeah. 
just want to get one question in here of my own intense personal curiosity about things that people can do, like parents specifically, yeah. to enhance the quality of their family dinners. Like what advice oh. do you have for kids and parents to create like strong health? I mean, because the same people, largely the same food for years and years. Sure, sure. Point, like what, what insights or advice do you have for people in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's one thing that comes to mind, several things, but um, a friend of mine, um, Kathy Maxwell, had this idea to create um, a, a family ritual around um, eating together called the blessing cup or you know we've just started um, we um, call it appreciation in the round and, and death over dinner but she would f- make a chalice with her kids out of clay and fill it with grape juice and pass the this chalice of wine or grape juice not wine um, around and everyone would take a sip and um, First, they'd say something that they appreciated about everyone at the table. Mm. and Or they could say something nice about everyone at the table. Or they could say something they learned that day. Mm. And at first, her kids were, you know, as you can imagine, a little bit hesitant about the whole thing. But it, it, with a little coaching, they ended up taking it on really robustly. And so to the point where she, when they left for college, they asked if they could make an individual cup to take with them and now they do it with friends and family and awesome you know and it, it, like even when they're in college in their dorms they were doing blessing cup and wow. so those type of things um where i mean it's for one it's awkward as a parent to try to create ritual um at your table like even saying grace feels awkward for even religious families sometimes right yeah or sometimes like i'll ask our 14 year old i'll say abby would you like to would you like to offer a blessing? No, thanks. <laughs> yeah. And of course, I don't want to force her to. Right. And and that's so, you know, notice that, 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 you know, sure, continue to make a blessing over the food, but also think of other um, rituals that will activate and engage your children, because that's the goal. It's not that they should be able to make a blessing. It's how do I meet them where they're at and engage them in an activity and help them through that will eventually ingrain. Um, The other thing is, like all humans, children respect vulnerability. They respect authenticity. Mm -hmm. If you tell your children something you're afraid of saying, um, some hardship you're having in your life, you will find a response to it. It's one of my golden rules um, when I'm hosting dinners. Even when I've done, you know, I've done so many death dinners, you've been like, well, that might get boring. Like, you're, you know, with people talking, you've heard every kind of answer. And and the thing is, the thing that makes it, continues to make it vital for me is that I push myself every time I host a dinner. I say something that I'm afraid of saying. Every dinner? Yeah. Wow. Yeah find my edge and go over it. And that's what, what happens in that. And it's becomes, you know, I have pretty wide edges at this point, but what you're doing is you're giving people access to you when you do that. Um, you're showing a vulnerable and a meaningful place in yourself and people tend to be, it, it amps up the empathy at the table. Mm-hmm. People have sensors for that, like just innately. And so if somebody's being vulnerable, it will turn on their empathy and so you'll see the better angels in your children. Mm-hmm. But it also gives people permission to do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're modeling, modeling that. So, um, you know, that's how, I mean, you could, you'll have the best experience at your, at your family gatherings if awesome. you 
if you use those a couple of those cool. rules yeah well thank you for that yeah of course that's great so okay how do you like when you meet somebody i mean you've done so much between death over dinner and drugs over dinner you know dot org all the dinners you've hosted being an advisor at summit you know what you're doing now with women teach men right you know like how do you describe yourself when you meet someone new how do you introduce yourself I don't. It's terrible. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's really useful to have written a book now because I can say I'm a writer. Yeah. You know, I just finished a book. Yeah. Um, I mean, before, like, you know, how long do you have? You know, somebody asked you that. It's right. like, you got an hour. It'll, it might be worth your time for me to tell you, but it's going to take you that long to understand this unique, you know, collection of things. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, and again, that's that, it, it, the... It would be much easier for me to have a conventional existence in some ways, right? It's much easier at a party to be like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm working media. I'm a journalist. I'm a this. I'm a that. And, you know, to make yourself almost unrecognizable is uh, is a challenge. Well, I know this is a challenge that each of us faces in some way. Some kind of resign or give up. Others, you know, continue to push the limits of... of you know, what is their identity? What's their professional identity? What's their personal identity? All this kind of thing. With, as I've looked, as I've known you over the last few years and as I've just watched you online and and this kind of thing, um, obviously this topic of death is a big one for you. I mean, I think it was now about five years ago you gave your TED Talk, Mm -hmm. you know, on this and and you've now hosted or organized, been responsible for the organization now thousands and thousands of these death dinners. Why is this? Why is this topic so resonant with you? I mean, why, why yeah, you could just bring sure. people together around food and everything you're talking about—the table being the first architecture—could have been significant. But why is death such a theme? Well, it is. If I said let's have dinner and talk about life, for one, it wouldn't have gotten your attention. It wouldn't have gotten the world's attention, mm-hmm. right? That's called every day, right? <laughs> I mean, the death dinner is actually a dinner about life, but. You know, I happen to have some experience in branding and narrative and cultural storytelling. So from that perspective, when I, you know, what, well, one, I realized how badly we die in this country, right? So, and that a lot of people are feel that impact financially. So when I realized that we're not talking about death and it's impacting us financially, emotionally, and that it you know, psychologically, you know, I mean, so many different ways are we impacted by how poorly we die. Plus, um, a conversation about death is like the foundation of philosophy. Um, it's also what gives our life meaning is our mortality. It's also that we've been so distanced from it, we've medicalized death. And so and we've distanced ourselves from wisdom traditions, and all wisdom traditions contain reflections and meditations on death. Yeah. It's central to many. And so there's this incredible, well, one, there's a gap in meaning, right? There's a real loss of meaning we know in our current culture. It's talked about by people more eloquent than me. And, and, and then there's this gap in facing our mortality. And I think they're the same, right? So that's my hunch. Um, I go on long hunches. Um, and then my design side starts designing around if my hunch is true, how do I get people to um, the full expression of this long hunch, mm-hmm. right? And so let's have dinner and talk about death um, is a provocation. It's a 
it's it's an uh, invitation it's um, permission giving if you even just mention the project to somebody the title of it or you're a journalist and you write it's called death over dinner or it's called let's have dinner and talk about death you're doing the work for me yeah right like it's fulfilling its desire as an um at the core of this project is to increase death literacy but also to increase our literacy around facing topics that we avoid aka reducing repression mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. we repress the thing the, the core of my work is the understanding that when we repress something we make ourselves highly susceptible to stress mm-hmm. right so in a secret is much like a repressed topic mm-hmm. right when that secret or that you know if you've had an affair with somebody say mm-hmm. and your wife or your husband is talking about fidelity mm-hmm. and the importance of fidelity or have you ever have you ever stepped out on me or i can't believe that joe you know cheated on mary mm-hmm. what's going on in your system if you have a secret about about an affair stress is cortisol yeah, yeah like lots of stress and we know very clearly that the flooding of stress hormones through our system is what creates disease. Mm-hmm. And so, or environments, an environment that's rich, um, you know, fertile terrain for disease or for infection or inflammation, mm-hmm. right? It is a type of inflammation. Right. And so if I can allow people to surface these things, that these secrets, these things that they're repressing, I don't mean... As I'm less interested in secrets, and I'm more interested in the things, the topics that we repress. Yeah. Um, the and some of it is because we have a cognitive bias, mm-hmm. right? Death. We have a cognitive bias around, which we could talk about later if we want. But the more I can give people access, or the work that the projects that I'm doing can give people access to alleviating a repressed topic or conversation for allow them to have full expression to their loved ones or friends or at least someone or themselves or themselves right they are going to be living in a less stress rich body right yeah and so it it, it's you know it it should be what our health insurance companies are funding um but you know by the way just one thing to put to put in here um and i was so i was just on um deathoverdinner.org yeah. today uh-huh. and I was looking at how I think it's a really cool design how anybody can go and basically download the guide you know and it will generate the invitation that they can send to their loved ones or their colleagues or friends or whatever and uh, by the way if it if you didn't snap to it already on the prep the, you know the book and this now we're going to have to add your, your book to the reading material yeah that's right, right? Which, yeah. Is, which is really cool yeah so that thing just that anybody can go you know, if someone has the privilege of being invited to one of these, definitely I encourage them to go. But you don't have to wait to be invited. You can organize and host one yourself, Yeah. which is really cool. And it's basically something anybody, just about anybody could do. Yep. Right? And it's cool. happened in 30 countries. And, you know, all there's a there's probably 100 death dinners happening tonight. That's awesome. You know, we don't know. We don't track them because yeah. we, <laughs> we haven't had to. Yeah. Um, so. Very cool. So let's go back to your book for a moment. So the title, let's talk about death over dinner. Yeah. Right. Um, who did you write this book for and what did you want it to do for them? Well, I mean, in, in essence, and I don't mean to be cheeky, it's written for anybody and everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, we all die. 
And so the majority of us could probably improve our ability to when it comes to speaking about death, mm-hmm. um, when it comes to facing death. If, you know, at some point someone close to us is going to be in critical condition most likely or be diagnosed with a terminal um, illness um, or chronic condition that will, you know, move them closer to mortality. We're going to lose someone we love. We are going to face our own death, whether we know it's coming or it happens, you know, we're involved in an accident. So my presumption (laughs) is that we could all use a little bit, myself included, an expansion, um, a deeper set of skills and willingness uh, and hear stories of how people have had these conversations and how they've impacted people's lives to be inspired to have the conversation which to see it's not morbid to see that it is actually a conversation that brings vitality and humor and deep connection and and so and there's not really a book that does that right now there's lots of books that talk about the industry of us being unwell and dying um, like being mortal or personal um, biographies or you know autobiographies like um, when breath becomes air and those are those are so important and then this book steps um, in many ways outside those and says, okay, you know, all right, you over there, maybe like me, you would like to have more freedom around this conversation. And in the process of writing the book and the process of creating Death Over Dinner, I've gained more freedom. So it's not like I'm, you know, in the realm of death is the realm of no experts. You know, so I don't profess to be an expert. I just profess to be willing and have gone on a journey. And, and I'm telling you about my journey and the journeys that I have collected of others. Um, so it's a very, um, it's a very humble book in my estimation. It's not, it's actually not written for me. It's not written to make me, um, for you to know how smart I am or thoughtful I am. It's, I'm, writing it with the reader in mind um, and really have changed the way that I write and the way that I speak so that it will hopefully land where more people are than if I was just, you know, you know, being my, uh, you know, speaking to my friends about this topic. Um, And so it's, it's, uh, you know, and I've had the opportunity and the honor of speaking with thousands of people about this. So I have a sense of how to meet people where they're at, I think. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I definitely think so. Because looking at the way the book is structured, following along from these prompts. Sure. That anyone could use as part of a death dinner they, they host or that they're a part of. And then seeing how you've put a few stories after each of the prompt. It's almost a, a response or how that, that prompt was used. And, and seeing how there's dozens and dozens of stories where even though this is a topic, you know, that we often don't want to face how, like you're saying, it is very life affirming, you know, people yeah. talking about reconnecting with their parents or, you know, solving problems before they become catastrophic, Sure. you know, or just um, in some ways healing themselves, maybe emotionally or spiritually, mm-hmm. even in the face of, you know, uh, a terminal diagnosis. Right. You know, and, and this kind of thing. What was the moment that you knew that you were going to write this book? Hmm. I would say I had 
a sense that this would turn into a book um, from the time we began the project. But it was um, when it became a, um, a reality to me, when I actually saw it, um, as opposed to kind of had a felt sense, when I saw that it was a book, was I was asked, um, Richard Harris um, is a, a producer and a, um, used to be a producer for Nightline um, for Ted Koppel. And as a journalist, and he had wanted to write about Death Over Dinner for, I can't even remember, I think it was for um, PBS or um, some sort of um, print version of PBS. And so I said, well, Richard, I'm going to be in Boston, and let's just do a dinner, and you can attend it. And But the thing is, you can't attend it as just a journalist. You have to attend it, and this is always my rule for journalists at the dinners, is um, you're not a fly on the wall. Um, you will also answer these questions, or you're not invited and there will be no article and that's fine with me. And so, you know, he's like, uh, he was not thrilled about the idea that he'd have to participate after, you know, so many years. Um, he's the producer that turned Ted Koppel onto Maury Schwartz that became Tuesdays with Maury. So he's, you know, been at this, like, it's been just a behind the scenes, a very important person in, in the end of life awareness movement. And so, and he saw this as another opportunity for sure to to have a of cat to be a catalyst around this topic and so we had a dinner and at that at that dinner um uh, both richard and another attendee a friend of mine safi bakal were adamant it was like this 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 needs to go beyond just a website um and a toolkit this needs to be a book and they kind of made me uh, promise that i would turn it into a book and and seeing that you know these very sophisticated, you know, middle-aged and older men like being so adamant that a book about a conversation about death need to happen, it, it you know, emblazoned into me. And, and then Richard, um, you know, had me on a phone call with Random House the next week. Um, and the idea wasn't there yet, but we had an interesting conversation. And then, and then he had me on a call with his favorite agent, Gail Ross, um, who certainly doesn't take on new clients very often and and she was thrilled about the project and so you know once again richard became as you know been this kind of you know matchmaker this in the end of life space i don't know you know tuesdays with maury is the most um, printed book of uh, biography of all time or auto you know biography of all time wow. and uh yeah, so it, it, it became clear to me at that point. It is a book that, as we just discussed, has so many stories, so many powerful and moving stories. And one of the things I love about it is that it's not just stories that you've collected from others, but you also share some of your own stories. And, and there's one in particular that I found really fascinating. And, and maybe it's because I'm, I just turned 40 as well that you talked about. It's going to get loud downstairs because okay. everyone's showing up. Let's okay. do that after. Yeah, I, I yeah. definitely want to hear yeah, you tell that yeah. because I thought that was great. I was about three months away from turning 40 and my friends decided to throw me a living funeral for my 40th birthday. And it came about kind of in a unique way. Well, I mean, it's a pretty unique thing. So it's not surprising that it came about in a unique way. But I had just broken up with the love of my life. Um, Angel Grant, my co-founder of Death Over Dinner. We decided that we couldn't figure out how to be romantic partners, though we wanted to remain best friends. And I was heartbroken. And um, the thought of facing my 40th birthday alone 
um, was terrifying. It just seemed like a threshold that I didn't want to be, you know, alone for. Um, just this um, this kind of sense that I haven't really figured out romantic relationship um, and the the kind of I guess really the loneliness that goes along with the lack of that kind of central relationship in one's life. And so I had a knee-jerk reaction, and immediately, um, as Angel and I were, you know, saying our goodbyes, I sent out an email to about 50 of my closest friends. I said, hey, three months from now, I'm turning 40, and I want all of as many of you as you possibly can to commit as soon as possible to um, spending the weekend with me somewhere on the northern coast of California. And, and the details will become more clear, but let me know if you're in. And I immediately got about 40 RSVPs, yes, like within the you know, first 24 hours, which felt amazing. Like it felt like, okay, this, is, this could actually be great. This could be a great birthday. And so um, about a week into this email chain, you know, because people started saying, you know, well, what are we going to do? You know, there was the, the things that happen on an email chain of 40 or 50 people. And one of my friends, Matt Wiggins, one of my, one of my most um, disruptive friends, threw uh, this kind of grenade into the center of uh, the email chain and said, hey, since Michael is, you know, Mr. Death, let's, let's do him a solid and turn his 40th birthday into a living funeral. Just kind of like a, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a, started as a little bit of a joke, tongue-in-cheek idea. And it, it started to gain real momentum. And people got very excited about it, both um, talking to me about it, but then also kind of behind the scenes. And, you know, the, the weekend arrived, and we had this incredible feast on Friday night. And on Saturday was going to be the ceremony. And it, it had reached a level of, uh, you know, I would say a certain amount of seriousness. And so I took it seriously, too, and spent the day in relative silence, uh, meditating and uh, you know, had a um, body worker come and work on me, and then I was anointed with oils, and there were steam baths, and I dressed all in white, and was really playing the part. And then was taken um, with my eyes closed downstairs. Um, it was dusk. Everyone was outside on this. So we were in Point Reyes, California, in this beautiful house a friend of mine owns. And before I know it, I'm being helped into a coffin, um, I didn't open my eyes. I just trusted the whole experience. But I was clearly being put into a wooden box. Luckily, or mercifully, there was no uh, lid to this coffin. And so I laid down. I didn't, you know, didn't resist, as I said, laid down. And then before I know it, I'm being lifted up. There are pallbearers. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I guess not surprisingly, they're breath smells of whiskey. Um, so it all it became even more real. And then I was taken inside to kind of the main room of this uh, house and put down. We're, we're in a very um, dimly lit, maybe there's just one or two candles in this room. And that's where everyone was gathered. Almost immediately, um, one of my friends, and at the time I didn't know who it was, um, started wailing like a guttural cry, um, the type that you almost never hear at funerals, like real grief. It had gotten very, seeing me um, motionless in white in a custom-made, you know, cedar um, coffin that my friends, four of my friends um, had um, commissioned and had built for me, unbeknownst to me, was just too much. And, and that started 
like a kind of an emotional wave that hit the room. And so it became very clear that, that this was, um, that it was a real experience that we were going to treat this at face value. And so for the next three hours, um, what happened was those that are closest to me on the planet eulogized me for one, um, but also offered some pretty, um, uh, rough grievances. Uh, there was, there was some real honesty being dropped in that room about places where people felt like I had hurt them or how they it felt like I hadn't really allowed myself to be seen by them, um, places where our connection wasn't very strong. Um, and that was actually, you would think that that would be a hard thing to hear, the grievances. But I knew that I could, you know, in a number of hours I was going to get up out of this coffin and I could work on those relationships, have the conversations, do the healing with the people that clearly needed it, that were willing to talk about a grievance in this setting. What was was really difficult were the were the eulogies. Was all of the love, you know? The uh, I don't think that beyond childhood, and everyone has a different childhood. Um, we don't really teach people how to receive love. Um, it's not, we don't teach one how to receive a hug, receive a kiss, receive a compliment. These are things that are pretty difficult for us. Um, and I realized that I had gotten very good at giving love and creating experiences for people and, you know, kind of built up my generous side, but I hadn't built up, I haven't really built up my receiving end. I haven't really built up the ability to accept, metabolize, take in love. You know, I think a lot of that was childhood, a really rough childhood. And, you know, my mother was great at a lot of things, but she wasn't a natural nurturer. Um, and so um, I really just have never developed that, um, those abilities. And it was very clear to me, and I was reading a couple weeks that that, you know, it was very clear to me walking out of that experience. After three hours, I eventually was dunked into a water, a uh, cedar uh, hot tub, you know, not dunked, but kind of, I guess, baptized almost in some way and brought back to life. And, you know, this incredible party ensued. But a couple of weeks later, I was reading this book, How We Die, I believe it's called. And it talks about the medical, what happens to us medically, physiologically, um, as our as our body dies in different settings. And I was reading about the heart. And the heart, this like principle life-giving, you know, organ in our, in, you know, within humanity, with, across humanity, across species, the heart has two main functions, which I didn't, I didn't realize. We think about the heart pumping blood. Um, that's kind of where we focus in the same way that we kind of focus on what we give or what we've created or what we've manifested. But the, the heart is two distinct muscles fused together in a kind of miraculous bit of timing. Half of the heart does pump blood out to our body, but the other half receives it and oxygenates the blood um, so that it's ready to be pumped back out. Um, so you have this perfect dualism of giving and receiving. And when you're not balanced, when your giving and receiving heart is not balanced, when the timing is off, that's called a heart attack. And it is still literally the number one killer in the world. And so I had this very real 
I would even call it an analogy or a metaphor because it's, it, it doesn't have that level of distance. But I had this very strong clarity about walking out of this experience, this kind of strange Adams family experience of being at your own funeral. I guess Tom Sawyer had the opportunity as well, fictionally. But um, having the experience, I, I came out with this very clear set of operating instructions. And that was learn how to receive. Or, you know, or you're not going to be on this planet as long as you would be otherwise. And so, you know, th that's what I've been focused on. We also, um, because of the success of uh, the funeral, we built a, you know, at Round Glass, we built a whole new platform and growing movement called The Living Wake. Um, and it's www.livewake.com. And it gives people the tools to have these experiences, not necessarily for those, uh, only for those people that are turning 40 or 50 or 60, but uh, say you're terminal. Perhaps you know that your time is limited or you think it might be, and you want to gather in a very intentional way and hear from your community, and maybe you want to say some things, but maybe you just want to hear what they have to say about you. Or maybe you're turning, you know, uh, 70 or 80, these milestone birthdays. Or maybe there's no reason, but other than the fact that you want to do this kind of wacky thing, I think it's an incredibly powerful ritual. There you have it, my friends. Thank you for listening to the School for Good Living podcast. I hope this inspired you to live more fully, to love more deeply, to do the things today that you thought maybe you would do tomorrow. Knowing life is short, life is precious. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Michael Hebb and that you learn more from him by visiting deathoverdinner.org. Maybe you organize your own death dinner. Maybe you have your own living funeral. All right, until next time, thanks again for listening. Take care.